Good morning. Good morning. Oh, excuse me, this may be important. Hello? Isn't that irritating? So would you take your device and make sure that it's off? That would be cool. You're going to have to hold me up today, as they say. I uh, had COVID and got over it and then had it again. Back to back, we both did. And so I feel fine and I've, I've tested okay. And uh, what's left is this residue of uh, not being able to speak. So I've made a plan that it's all written out here. And <laughs> if I get to the point where I lose my voice, I'm just going to point. <laughs> you come up and do whatever. So let's begin in silence. Do whatever it takes for you to just be in the room. Put your feet on the floor. Close your eyes if that's helpful. Our, our goal here is to be present and open and awake. And while we're being silent, I'll read to you this Gallic prayer I've adapted for us. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and at our departing. So I know that um, your time is valuable, and I appreciate the investment of your time that you have made here today, and I hope that this time today contributes to at least three things, that it um, deepens your awareness, our awareness and understanding of who we are that it deepens our awareness and understanding of who sacred mystery is, and that it strengthens our commitment to treat others as if they were us because they are. And, and though I'm grateful that you came, I do want you to be disturbed. I would like for you to be disturbed by joy. You know that parable in the, in the New Testament where the waters are disturbed and you can enter in and be healed? I don't want that kind of disturbance to happen today. Be disturbed by joy. And we certainly have to work at keeping our hearts and our minds open in this closed-minded, closed-fisted culture in which we live. And so in our increasingly contentious and divisive culture, I just want to be clear that the stance of ordinary life is that everyone who shows up here, regardless of your gender, age, ethnicity, social status, religious or non-religious beliefs, sexual orientation, political affiliation, degree of ability or inability, whether you're right-handed, left-handed, how much you weigh or how short you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Okay. <clears throat> I told Sherry driving here today that I was going out uh, skating on thin ice today. And what I meant was with my voice. Uh, we'll see if I can make it through. But then I thought, well, going out on thin ice at church is a good thing to do. Because either you will make it to the other side or it will break and you'll go through and you get baptized. <laughs> Either way, it could be good. Thin ice. God gets a makeover. That's the title of this time today. And that may sound pretentious, bold, audacious, even heretical. But unless you have been living under a rock, and by the way, if you have been living under a rock, I would like to borrow that rock from time to time. Um, 
the world is in so much trouble and turmoil in so many places, it would just be nice to ignore it for a while. So if you have that rock, if you could loan it to me for a couple of days, I'll give it back to you, and then we'll all be happy. But in case you've been living under a rock, I have been, over the last number of weeks, trying to lay a foundation for what I see my teaching being in the months ahead. And I'm calling these teachings love letters to modern mystics. Now don't let the word mystic scare you. A mystic is simply someone who sees the sacred in ordinary life. And a mystic is a person who reminds us that the ordinary is holy, that there's no not sacred space. And this is one of the understandings of God that I would like to move into today. So we spent a long time talking about how awareness is the first essential step and the doorway through which to enter. Uh, following this path that is no path of our ongoing spiritual work. And then the last time I taught in here, I laid out a vision I have for going forward. And the image I suggested is that we walk this path that is no path by holding an evolving image and understanding of God in one hand, an evolving image and understanding of ourselves in the other hand, and then using light that comes from the life and teachings of Jesus as informed by the best scholarship that we can possibly lay our hands on to illuminate the path as we move forward. Those, those things. Now, <clears throat> I experienced it a path because I experience ongoing learning and awareness. I'm 85 and I'm still learning, I'm still growing, still discovering things that's really exciting to me. The uh, other night we saw an extended interview with Steven Spielberg and John Williams. John Williams is the composer who composes all the music for Steven Spielberg's films. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., um, Star Wars, all of those, all those great films. John Williams is 90 and still playing tennis and still composing music. He is my new idol. So, good, good thing. So, if our understanding of ourselves is to evolve and grow, then so must our understanding of God evolve and grow because the two are intimately connected and it will be immediately apparent as we go forward today how relevant this is to our current social political situation both locally and nationally. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Proverbs, the phrase what you don't know can't hurt you goes back as far as 1576. It's nonsense of course the longer I've done my own spiritual practice and work, the longer I've sat with others in a relationship of personal counseling or spiritual direction, the clearer it has become to me that what we don't know owns us. Now, when I was in graduate school, we were taught that there had been three profound shocks to the human species. And these were called ontological shocks because they have to do with the entire notion of human existence. The first of these shocks was given the title the Copernican Revolution. It was a revolution about revolving. I think that's funny, but <laughs> nobody laughed. So contrary to what was the accepted authority in the Western world, that taught and believed by the Catholic Church, the earth was not the center of the universe. Everything did not revolve around the earth. Now, many people are still psychologically not adapted to this. 
But the fact is that if Copernicus was correct, then the church is going to have to change all of its teachings. And rather than do that, the church simply declared that Copernicus was wrong. This happened in 1616. And the church did not change its mind until 1835. This is a parable of organized religion. And now, with the discoveries made possible by the Hubble and the James Webb telescopes, we're still being shocked by the immensity of it all. We, we still speak of things as out there, as in outer space. We're in outer space. And, and even though we claim to know this information, we still talk about the sun rises and sets. And as a species, the more powerful and wealthy we are, we become even more narcissistic about this. The human species thinks it is the center of things. The second shocker is what we know as the Darwinian discovery in establishing the fact of evolution. And simply because it's called the theory of evolution doesn't make it any less a fact than calling it the theory of gravity. Gravity is still pretty solid. And again, we know intellectually, that everything is an ongoing evolutionary process over eons and that the human species is just a minuscule blip blip on the whole thing. But we think we're pretty important. And then came the third shock, the human psyche. And this one is about the human psyche itself, and this is the work of Sigmund Freud. I don't want to go into how wrong Freud was about so many things, He was right about a lot of things. He was an angry guy. He wanted to establish psychiatry as a medical discipline, and so he fought religion uh, specifically. He's the guy who wrote The Future of Illusion just to establish psychiatry as a medical reality. But Freud uh, did lift up the role of the unconscious. And, and uh, in human life and behavior, and was a genius in that particular area. Now, the first part of my own clinical training, I knew academically about the unconscious, but we weren't really taught much about it experientially or to deal with it in clinical practice because the thing that was in vogue when I was in training was system, was, was how problems were formed in systems and how problems resolved, problem formation and problem resolution in system psychology or what we know as family therapy. And Houston, Texas was one of the five places in the world that was a hotbed for the training of people who were interested in system psychology. And I'm so grateful to have benefited from that. But it was only later that I doubled back and explored the role of the unconscious. And I did this by not just doing academic work, but by getting into analysis and getting trained uh, in analytic work and exploring the works of Carl Jung. And uh, I had been grabbed in graduate school by a paragraph that I've read in here numerous times that you're going to get to hear again. Because I think it's so, so important. Jung said, among all of my patients in the second half of life, that is to say over 35, there's not been one whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life. It is safe to say that every one of them fell ill because he, forgive the the sexist language, had lost what the living religions of every age have given to their followers, and none of them has been really healed, who did not regain his religious outlook. This, of course, has nothing whatever to do with a particular creed or membership of a church. This set me on a path that led to here. The path was to study psychology on the one hand and religion spirituality on the other and try to put those two things together, which is what has been my life's work. Carl Jung's contribution in the field of psychology are innumerable. Perhaps, however, his most important insight has to do with what Jung called the shadow. 
Jung wrote, the meeting with oneself is at first the meeting with one's own shadow. The shadow is a tight passage, a narrow door whose painful constriction no one is spared, who goes down to the deep well. But one must learn to know oneself in order to know who one is. It's an incredibly important piece of writing. And, and, and to be uh, really, really clear, before we go further today, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, <clears throat> the shadow in itself is not evil or bad. It's just the shadow, and we all have one. It is what allows us to do evil things without being aware that we are doing evil things. At this very moment in American culture, we are not only in the grips of really destructive shadows, but also ours is a culture in which many are actively working to ensure that people, especially young people, are kept from seeing or knowing about the shadow aspect of our own history. And because these shadows have shaped our, our culturally inherited understanding of God, we need not only to be aware of them, but to keep them visibly out in front of us so that we are in more, more in charge of them than they are in charge of us. You don't get rid of the shadow. You bring it into the light, okay? I'm going to mention what three of these shadows are, and then I want to talk about how these shadows have shaped or misshaped our understanding of God. As a matter of fact, I just get into the, the, the idea of where did the notion of God that we have today come from? Um, how did it enter the human psyche? And, and by the way, though I'm talking about what religions are in the Western world, I'm not talking about Eastern religions or their understanding of the sacred. I know about them, but that's really not my area of expertise. So I'm not talking about Eastern religions. I'm not talking about African religions. I'm not talking about First Nations religions. Only tangentially will we get into that um, later on. Um, and further, I believe that what I'm saying applies to all versions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, in Judaism, you will find what I'm talking about in the esoteric or mystical branch called the Kabbalah. And in Islam, you will find it certainly in Sufism and, and um, that. So everybody in this room has a shadow. We have shadow aspects of our lives. We have shadow aspects of our living. And it is the assumption or claim that we don't have a shadow or that we've moved beyond our shadows that most clearly indicates that we have one. Right? The shadow aspect of the human psyche functions both individually and collectively. It's the collective that I'm talking about today. By the way, in Jungian lingo, being captured by a complex is not the same as living out of a shadow, right? It's something that can punch you. You know, everybody in here gets captured by a complex from time to time, you know? Somebody can say the slightest thing. Somebody cut you off on the freeway or whatever, and something from the unconscious reaches up and grabs you and drags you down into a, a rage or depression or fear or something that lasts for hours. You're in a complex. And as one of my analyst trainers said to me, we don't have complexes. Complexes have us, right? But I, that's different from living out of a shadow. So I'm going to mention some shadow aspects that, that we live out of. The one thing that Jesus criticized more than any other was the denial by very good religious people that they were living out of their shadow. Jesus called it hypocrisy. And he criticized that more than any other single thing. Jesus is never upset 
with those that the religious folks of his day label sinners. He's uh, just upset with the religious folks who do the labeling. He only gets up with people who think they've got it all together, which I know doesn't apply to anybody here, but I grew up in a religious tradition where the shadow was the problem. Uh, that is, it focused on getting rid of faults, especially petty sins of the flesh. To paraphrase Richard Rohr, in the religion of, uh, I grew up in, we were much more concerned about what people did in bed than the fact that they didn't have a bed to do anything in. All right. So the goal is not, as I said, not to get rid of the shadow, but simply to bring it in the light to expose its game. Low-level religion almost always focuses on the shadow. And when that happens, the narcissistic structure of the self remains totally in control and unexposed. Um, for example, one of the shadows that I'm going to talk about today, the shadow of my youth, um, allowed the religion of my youth to have a huge emphasis on foreign religion, on, on foreign mission, all right? I grew up Southern Baptist in Tennessee, and we raised a ton of money every year to send missionaries to Africa to save the souls of people who were lost. But the shadow aspect of that very religion did not allow those very generous good people to drink from the same water fountain of black people in Columbia, Tennessee. That's a shadow. Now, if we want to build a container for a viable spirituality for the future, we got to see and deconstruct the shadow aspects of our current religious structures. For what they are, we bring them in the open, expose them, to the light, and doing this is the first step we take in giving God a makeover. So I call these the shadows that rule, run, and ruin us. Okay? You with me? The first of these shadows is what I call white male folk religion. The religion that we have inherited in this place is built on this shadow. Now, we'll talk about later where it came from, but the god of this shadow is depicted as a mighty ruler in the sky, um, governing from outside the world somewhere. And the cultural paradigm of male power has been and is so taken for granted that many people simply don't recognize its grip on us and, and we so easily dismiss it. We think, well, this is the God-ordained way things are, right? Gender inequality is just a way of life. I love the way Joan Chidester puts it, we try to walk through life on one leg. And we're not consciously aware of the impediment this causes us. Racism is a consequence of this because the world is or should be run by white males. That they are rich, because that's one meaning of being powerful, goes without saying. So the victims of the system created by the shadow are made, by, are made invisible because this shadow's tendency is to conceal what it does not want people to perceive. Now, I've got to be careful not to spend too much time here because we could come out here, camp out here for weeks, and then the second thing is I could really risk offending some people. But... In the Christian fundamentalism movement that is growing in this country and around the world today, women are subordinate to men. One of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist system, by the way, the Southern Baptist is the only religious denomination in the United States that is identified by a regional label. The big, one of the biggest churches in California was recently expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention because 
it had an ordained female minister on the staff. That happened in 2023 in the United States of America. There is a growing movement among evangelical Christians for what is called complementary marriage. You know what a complementary marriage is? It is explicitly where the wife is subservient to the husband. I mentioned this to my wife. But here, the woman willingly and gladly submits to the husband being the head of the household. Now, this arrangement probably made sense in a time when the family needed protecting from the violence of other men. But in our time, it does nothing to reduce the growing domestic violence that exists in evangelical white Christian homes. And the statistics point this out. Now, LBGTQIA plus folks who don't fit into the sexual roles defined by the patriarchy are treated even worse. And you can see this being played out in our politics at the moment in America. Some years ago, I gave a sermon here, and um, I don't get to do that often, but when I do, I try to make I try to make the most of it, and after that particular sermon, somebody came up to me and said, don't you believe that people need saving? And I said, yes, I do. Uh, we live in a world, I didn't say this at the time, but I said, yes, I do. And then we, well, we do I have time for a big conversation? But we, we live in a world where there is global political instability, we have a belligerent China. We have a psychotic Putin. We have the war in Ukraine. We have economic instability. We have a looming and really real climate crisis. We have gun violence that is growing. We have the issues being brought to us by artificial intelligence. And what our legislatures focus on are drag queen contests. Our country, that's a shadow. That's living out of a shadow and not paying attention to other things. Yes, we need saving. A white Christian patriarchal world is not safe for anyone. It's not good for the earth. It's not good for earth's non-human creatures. It is a safe place for aggressive, narcissistic, alpha white males and for those who align themselves with them. And those who align themselves with them, by the way, are called by the social scientists authoritarian followers. And that term came from the study of those seemingly normal people in Germany, Italy, and Japan who abandoned the, their morality and became willing to commit unspeakable horrors in exchange for the safety and prosperity promised to them by their leaders. By the way, you will notice that the leadership that divided the United Methodist Church, all male. As I said, we could speak, we could spend weeks here. But this is a shadow. It is a real one. And we are all affected by it. The second shadow that I would point out, and one that has exerted enormous power over shaping both our religious and non-religious culture, is the notion of a flawed creation inhabited by flawed creatures. And the church over the ages has really capitalized on this. The message, sometimes subtle, sometimes not, is there's something wrong with you. You're lost. You're a sinner. But we have the solution to your problem, which we will give you in exchange for your loyalty and your money. Now, many of you in this room are parents, and you know 
that no human being comes into the world being taught that they, thinking that they are a flawed creature. We have to be taught this. We have to be taught that something's wrong with them, us. Now, just putting these two shadows together creates a huge problem. The formula this produces is, if you want to be safe, here are the conditions you must adhere to, and we must be compensated in some way for you to experience the safety and security that you're seeking. Now, one of the ways this plays out is that we elevate people, usually males, to positions of honor, to rule over us in some way, and they are immune from wrongdoing. An example of this is what has happened in the Roman Catholic Church. Not only is there no chance in heaven that a woman is going to become a priest, but a kind of protection and power has been placed onto priests so that when one of their number has been guilty of pedophilia, they have in turn been protected by their fellow priests because to condemn them would make the whole group look bad. It doesn't work, of course, but that in and of itself doesn't keep the hypocrisy from occurring. Now, one of the worst aspects of this second shadow is it doesn't produce adults. It produces independent, uh, it produces dependent childlike people who are dependent on that higher authority for their sense of well-being. You've got to remain in that state of dependence and uh, obedience. What, it, what we know is the prosperity gospel comes directly out of the second shadow. God will bless you if you only give me your money because I am God's representative on earth and you know how it works. Perhaps the most devastating shadow both of our culture and our religion has to do with belief in the role of redemptive violence. We have just moved through the Easter season, and every year I cringe when I see evidence of what I call the most successful bad theology ever written. This bad theology teaches that Jesus suffered and died so that you don't have to. Jesus took God's punishment on himself to protect you from God's wrath. Now think, what kind of God is that? That's divine child abuse. Now we come to this notion of God pretty honestly. I want to read to you some passages from Holy Scripture. When people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear, and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. That's in Exodus. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all those who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. That's Nahum. Not a book you read regularly. But since these foreign settlers from Babylon and other areas did not worship the Lord when they first arrived, the Lord sent lions among them and killed them. That's in 2 Kings. The Lord sent a tremendous hailstorm against all the land of Egypt. It left all of Egypt in ruins. The hail struck down everything in the open field. People, animals, and plants alike. Even the trees were destroyed. That's in Exodus. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abide, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord. By burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different from that he had commanded, so fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. That's in Leviticus. Cheery little things. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, I grew up in a church where um, we were asked, and we asked, are you saved? And if you didn't answer yes, you were either looked down upon or shunned 
or, or witnessed to. That was even worse. Because if you weren't saved, you were destined to the fires of hell. Richard Rohr, to quote him again, says, No one would go out on a second date with a God like that. <laughs> now, what's worse is that this shadow affects how we treat each other. If God is violent, so can we be. If God saves us by acts of violence, so can we. So this country has the highest percentage of incarcerated people in the world. And most of those who are incarcerated don't come from the upper echelons of society. They are the poor, the dispossessed, people of color. And we are immersed in a culture that has a death wish. I was reading something just yesterday about the spiritual, are we going to study war no more? That's all we do. I am firmly in support of sending arms and weapons to Ukraine because I think Putin is a vicious human being. But the arms and weapons that we are supplying are made, created, manufactured, right here. And when it comes to gun violence, we have a cultural death wish. After the recent school shooting in Nashville, one parent whose child had been shot in a school shooting in Nashville two years ago said... We are not safe from each other anywhere anymore. And of course, we have a global death wish because we're killing the planet. Now, as far as I know, every religion in the West has some version of how, as the Hebrew scriptures put it, we are created in the, in the image and likeness of God. And that somehow we've gotten separated from this image and likeness, and our spiritual work is to reunite us with this image of, and likeness. <clears throat> if, however, you take a close look at what Karl Armstrong calls the history of God, it turns out that ever since what the historians refer to as the agricultural revolution, that's 10,000 years ago, that's not that long, what we've actually been doing is molding God in our image. Now, I want you to let that sink in, okay? The understanding that we have of God is only 10,000 years old. Our species has been around for 300,000 years. So it was only 10,000 years ago that God became a king-like figure inhabiting a realm above the sky. God sits on the throne. And as I illustrated from the passages I quoted from the Hebrew Scripture, the God we have created is a violent God. One biblical scholar says, quote, the Hebrew Bible contains a thousand verses where God's own violent actions of punishment are described. A hundred passages where God expressly commands others to kill or tries to kill for no apparent reason. Violence is easily the most often mentioned activity and central theme of the Hebrew Bible. Now, there have been efforts, and I have certainly participated in them, to modify this understanding of God into a more benign creature, one of love and compassion. And some people have used Jesus' parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son to say that God is like that, par that parent. God is forgiving and loving and accepting. And, and, and that's a great image of God, but this God is still out there. 
The fundamentalists of our time certainly see God this way. God has revealed himself to us in God's word. This word of God is true and unchangeable. The representatives of this God on earth, mostly men, assure us that we know what God wants because this information is contained in the Bible, which they are trained to proclaim and teach us. And if you're on the right side of things, meaning the conservative side, this word of God is taken literally. And if, it's not, if you're not on the right side of things, but more on the progressive or left side of things, then you can take the word of God more metaphorically, but it's still the word of God that you've got to deal with. Now, of course, I'm making a character tour of this, but it is not far off. The conservative Christian evangelical movement is growing all over the world. I read somewhere the other day that there is a movement in the state of Texas to ensure that the Ten Commandments will be posted in every classroom. Now, why there's not a drive to post the Beatitudes, I'm not sure. At any rate, there are some people who cling tightly to this, and then there are a growing number of other people who say, no, I don't think so. Now, why have we got this huge divide? It's dividing our country, dividing the world. Well, we live in a world of mass information and rapid dispersal of that information. And some people see this, and they begin to question everything, and they say, well, you can't believe anything, and the whole mess, and they just walk away. Um, on the other hand, there are those who are so confused and scared, and they see the world becoming so open, so complex, that they look for securities, and ironically, they find them in outdated certainties. So to repeat and summarize, human, humans hungry for power and domination end up legitimating their hunger for power and control onto an elevated human-like figure ruling from outside the world. They construct a story and theoretical basis for their beliefs, they call what they construct scripture, handed down from this creature, they say it contains the doctrine of ultimate truth. And it doesn't take long before this package has to be modified. So how does God actually relate to us? And again, I want to just point out that in the long 300,000-year history of the human species, the Christian movement is teeny. Okay, teeny. But the Christians of all stripes, and the, and the Jews and, the, and the, uh, Muslims participated in this as well. They have a theological way for understanding this. That um, uh, Because the question gets related, how does this God relate to us? And, and, and so it turns out that God is not just one imperial deity, but God is a ruling threesome, right? Now, Christians call this the Trinity. And again, as I said, there are similar notions in Judaism and in Islam as, as well. So the religion that most in this room have inherited is this messy, confusing understanding of the sky god. So it is popularly understood among most Christians that at some point this sky god sent down his son to sort things out. And again, this didn't happen that long ago. And Jesus did this sorting out in three years. And then Jesus went back. And in Jesus' place, we have this amorphous thing called the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Progressive Christians kind of morph all this over and they squish it together and say, well, God has a deep capacity for relationality and embraces the whole world. And uh, more conservative Christians take a really different, different, different take on that. But. So one of the things I wanted to raise today, and God gets a makeover, is how young all this is, how very, very historically new all this is. And also, I want to suggest that we go back to an understanding of God that existed prior to the agricultural revolution. Now, though this may sound like something new, I have personally been stating in here, in my teachings, and when I have preached in the cathedral across the way, one thing, and that is God is not up there. I've said it in the pulpit, I've said it here. If there's one thing I would like to be remembered about my teaching in this place that I love so much, it is that God is not out there. God doesn't come from outside the world. God comes up through creation. That's, a, that's an understanding of, create, of incarnation that I think we get the privilege of rethinking in light of the new co cosmology. Jesus didn't come into the world. Jesus comes out of the world. The Holy Spirit does not come into the world. The Holy Spirit has always been in the world, brooding over creation, and we get the privilege of experiencing and participating in the Spirit, and that's what it means to be a mystic. Now, what I'm saying may sound new and refreshing to some of you, I hope. may sound like heresy to others. But it is a returning to an innate wisdom that our species has known for many thousands of years. It's not a new discovery. It's a homecoming. It's a homecoming to that which is deeply sacred all around us. Now, some of you may ask, well, what? does this understanding of God look like? Does God have a face? And I am tempted to say, oh yes, God has a face. You remember that story. When Esau and Jacob met in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, after a long estrangement, and they had to struggle, and they embraced chest to chest, and Esau sees his brother's face, and Jacob says, I see your face, brother, and you look like God to me. Okay. I do believe that. I do want to emphasize that. You've heard the saying that one out of three people is mentally ill. So if you look on either side of you and those two people seem to be doing okay. So if you look on either side of you, you can see what God looks like. I want to say that, and I am saying that, but I hope I'm saying so much more than that, because if you say just that, we're still narcissistic. We're still locating God in the human species. God is everywhere. God is in everything. I want to read to you something that Theologian Elizabeth Johnson wrote, this is one of the most beautiful passages. She wrote, a flourishing humanity on a thriving planet, rich in species in an evolving universe, altogether filled with the glory of God. Such is the vision that must guide us at this critical time of Earth's distress to practical, practical and critical effect. Ignoring this view keeps people of faith and their churches locked into irrelevance while a terrible drama of life and death is being played out in the real world. Now you see what's at the heart of this is love. And though the world's religions claim love as a central virtue and value, you have to wonder if what appears to be the main agenda of organized religion continues, 
Is this good for the world? How different our world would be, or at least part of it, if some Methodist had put as much energy into combating racism that has been spent opposing full inclusion of all people into God's community of faith and love. How different would things be? Now, I am in no way pretending that Jesus shared our cosmological understandings. He, but I am saying this, and this is how I want us to follow Jesus. Jesus did not embrace the God he had inherited. He gave God a makeover by having opportunity to quote all those passages from Hebrew Scripture. He knew them, but he didn't use them. He told the story of the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan, and said, God is like a king who invites everyone to come to his banquet. Our current cosmology teaches oneness, that all that is and all who are are intimately connected. And the shadow aspects of our culture have caused so many people to have difficulty with what I'm about to say regarding but regardless of what conditions are laid down by any religious system created by humans, the experiential fact is that every one of us and everything is unconditionally loved. So in our remake of God, we start where whoever wrote a verse found in 1 John starts. It is not our love for God that matters, but God's love for us. Organized religion says your love for God matters by what you believe, how much you give, how faithful you are, what your spiritual practice is. Forgive me. So, and no, what Jesus would say, no, that's not what matters. What matters is God's love for you. And someone here says, well, there's got to be more to it than that. Because that lets us off the hook. And I want to say, don't be so quick to say that. Because if you surrender to this notion, you have got to face the most formidable condition of all. And that is, if I am unconditionally loved by God, then I too must love, unconditionally, all others. You see, we're not pleading with God to save us in any sense whatsoever. Rather, we are collaborating with the Great Spirit in completing and in fulfilling what is called God's will. And what is God's will? That you and I and every other creature on this planet that belongs to God be permitted to thrive what a different world this would bring about. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and uh, we'll see you here next week. Thank you. See you.